what many consider the first uh, modern novel was uh, by Miguel de Cervantes' Don Quixote, um, written in the early 17th century. Um, was, I learned it most from the musical The Man from La Mancha. Have you ever seen that? Especially the movie with Peter O'Toole, um, who I think in real life was constantly completely inebriated. And so he fell perfectly into the role um, of Don Quixote um, as a great wonderful horns and bum, 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 bum. I am I Don Quixote the Lord. So it just goes on and, and then um, has like this lovely, lovely song where he's trying to woo this this woman. Dulcinea. If you don't know, it's really beautiful. And then um, she sings the song because that's not her name. Um, and, and so it's like it's really it's really fantastic. Um, but basically, the story of Dr. Quixote is this, this kind of older nobleman or gentleman who's um, from this area of Spain that's just south of Madrid called, called La Mancha, which as well is already a joke. It's like the title is a joke in itself, because in Spanish, La Mancha is a stain um, on, on yourself, but that's not what the region is named after. It comes from an Arabic word, but so he's already playing, playing with this, and it's this, this great kind of irony of someone in the 17th century idealizing the, the Middle Ages, and idealizing these knights errant, as they were called, and just living in a different time and looking out, and just acting this fool, acting this foolish person. W.H. Auden wrote, wrote this wonderful essay on, on Don Quixote, and he talked about how there's three different types of heroes that are most often used in stories. And there's the, the epic hero, like, like Odysseus, like um, Achilles, these great, these great heroes of old that are just so noble and they have these ex- wonderful excellencies and everybody admires them. And then there's the tragic hero like, like Hamlet or, or another, another play who has like a lot of noble qualities but has this great tragic flaw that ultimately is, is his downfall. And then there's comic heroes. Um, Step right now. But, uh, oh, in, in, in Twelfth Night. I'm just going to do all 17th century literature today. Um, uh, Twelfth Night, they have this wonderful character, Malvolio. Um, this is just fantastic. And he's this butler who thinks he's, he's a wonderful person. And he does this great, he always assumes, he's kind of like Don Quixote. He thinks he's so much more noble than he really is, that he's just, he's just a servant. But he has this, um, this great line that people have not have taken unironically. Some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon it. Which sounds like, oh, what a noble line. That seems like what kings would be, but Malvolio is the one who speaks it. Um, and so it's this terrible irony of like greatness is this, this displacement of looking at this absurd figure um, and assuming this kind of greatness. And so those are the three, three kind of heroes. Um, but then Auden displays something different for Don Quixote. Don Quixote is something different. Because he says that as opposed to the three most conventional forms of heroism, the fourth is the Christian saint. The fourth is the Christian saint. This is what Auden says. He says, the Christian saint has no special, special virtue of power or of knowledge, only an obedient will. He is virtuous out of faith in and love of God and his neighbor, not out of a pride that wants him to think well of himself. It's so easy for, for someone who truly believes in something to be seen as this absurdist fool. Something, somebody who truly believes and isn't, that thinks that faith and religion isn't just a nice story to tell kids to make sure they don't steal from you. <laughs> that faith and religion isn't just this kind of tool for the lesser 
classes. That is, as a 19th century writer said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of a soulless conditions. That it's so easy to fall into that, that, that trap and see, and see this in so much of literature, so much of society. says, like, oh my gosh, a person who actually believes in something, that's the crazy thing. That's the crazy thing. Paul, St. Paul was already gesturing at this when he says in 1 Corinthians, the mes- message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. The cross already is this foolish thing. Jesus Christ is this foolish thing. Jesus Christ, who wasn't born, didn't descend from on high, wasn't the son of kings, but this child of a carpenter. Not born in a palace, born in a stable. Not set into this grand crib that's out of the Restoration Hardware catalog, but a... (laughs) but a trough with hay in it and a lot of animal slobber that's like filled throughout it. Not, that isn't, isn't given the most beautiful onesie for that, that leaving the hospital picture. I was at the hospital on a visitation in this, it was what, so precious, this woman had her newborn baby and she had a, a matching outfit with the baby. And the baby was in this one, onesie and she was in the exact one. She was so happy and it was so great. And like, that's, that's not what... Baby Jesus was dressed as. There's something different going on. God is revealing God's self, not in the assumed ways, not in the standard ways of power, not in the standard ways of authority, but showing that those ways of power and authority do not have final say over this world. They cannot fix all the things around that we need to look for our hope somewhere else. The earliest... Christian monks didn't build these palatial mansions, didn't build these wonderful monasteries. They just went into the desert in Egypt and like sat. <laughs> they were, um, history knows them as the desert mothers and desert fathers. And they read the Bible, they listened to the preachings, and they were like, okay, Jesus tells me to sell everything. I'm going to now sell everything, and then I will just go um, like he did, and I'll just figure it out afterwards. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of people, so they, the desert mothers and fathers would go and just like sit in a cave, and people would come up to them and be like, hey, what's going on? What should I do with my life? Um, there's a lot of different stories. One story, I, I can't remember the source of, but it was basically there was two desert fathers who were trying to enter this house, and neither of them wanted to presume to go first. And so they stood there for 15 hours. Um, and, then, and then went forward. Um, and then someone else came through. And then they're like, okay, we can go now. Um, but um, so another, another story goes like this. Abba Macarius was asked, how should one pray? And the old man said, there is no need at all to make those long discourses. It is enough to stretch out one's hands and say, Lord, as you will. And as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. Lord, help. God knows very well what we need. And God shows us his mercy. Another saying from Blessed Ama Syncletica. Ama for, for mother, Abba for father. Ama Syncletica was asked if poverty is a perfect good. She said, for those who are capable of it, it is a perfect good. Those who can sustain it receive suffering in the body but rest in the soul. For just as one washes coarse clothes by trampling them underfoot and turning them about in all directions, even so the strong soul becomes much more stable thanks to poverty. So people would flock to hear these words. They would be like, oh, wow, that's really, that's really noble. That's really cool. And then kind of go back to their own lives. Um, as as most, most of us in history have done, when we come across someone who is holy, we're like, that is so cool. Good for you. And then we return. 
Um, and as, as I've quoted before, as St. Augustine said, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. <laughs> but people wanted, people, people wanted this and saw that something good was going on. My friends, we're continuing our series on, on the saints, on when the saints come, on how to be a saint. Last week, we kind of spoke about sainthood in this general fashion. We talked about how, how saints comes from, from Latin, sanctus, and, and holiness comes from a German word, and how they really mean the same thing, but in English, we're kind of confused because we mix German and Latin a lot. But also, we talked about Oscar Romero. We talked about his life, um, the things that he did and the, what he represented. Today, we're going to talk about the specifics of, of holiness, the specifics of sainthood. Because one way to think about holy people in our lives is on this wide scale. It's on the people that everyone acknowledges as holy. Like, like Mother Teresa was an example of this when I was growing up. Mother Teresa, with this, this holy woman who was born in the Ottoman, Ottoman-controlled Macedonia and then moved to India when it was still a, a colony of England and set up the missionaries of charity, set up these hosp- hospices, when nobody was talking about hospices, set up these leper houses so that people with leprosy could die with dignity. A person recognized in her lifetime as a saint. A life dedicated in that way, often though, to, though we don't spend enough time with people in our lives to really see their entire life, to kind of see that holy. There's a display going on of the public perception of sainthood. As well, if we spend time with a lot of people, usually we don't focus on their amazing qualities, but we kind of see the peccadilloes. We see, we see the flaws. We see the things that they don't do, the things that they don't say right, the ways they leave improperly. But I don't want us to think of sainthood and holiness as people that are far away and distant. That's the easiest temptation to do, right? That's the easiest thing to do is think, oh, that's for very long ago, or that's for people over there, or that's for other people in our lives. But today I want us to think about people in our own life. People in our own life who draw our spirits to God. And who draw our spirits to love. As Alina's mom, Anne-Marie, used to say, are you in the construction business or the destruction business? Are you building up the world or are you tearing it down? Now I want us to take a little time this morning to share with someone next to you, someone you don't talk to a lot, about a person in your life who is drawing your eyes to God or to love. Who is a holy person who has lived a sacrificial life or who has brought you or shown you what kind of life is possible? So you can take, take a few minutes at this time. To, you can stand up, stretch a little bit. Really, just talk, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs>
All right, we're going to bring it on back together. You can finish up conversations after the service. We'll be good. You can still talk to each other after church. It's okay. You have permission. It's so powerful to hear, hear the words, the lived words. It's also so powerful to speak them. I think that's important. I want us to remember that. Bartimaeus is a beggar who is blind. Bartimaeus is a beggar who is blind, and he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is near. And he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people scold at him. What are you doing? Come on, Bart. He wasn't going to talk to you. What are you doing? But he's a little louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And to his surprise, and I'm sure even more to the surprise of the crowd around him, Jesus responds and says, come, come to me. And then he, he immediately tears off his, his cloak and runs to Jesus. The cloak, I'm sure it was covering sores, covering sores and other things that he, was, he had gained from living on the street and being blind, unable to earn food for himself, unable to live for himself. But he doesn't care. He tears off his cloak and he runs to where Jesus is. Runs without being able to see. But he seeks out this person. Jesus stops and asks him, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And I think anybody who's ever believed in God or Jesus have, have longed to be asked that question. Oh God, why don't you just ask me today, what do you want? What do you want, Wilson? What do you want today? Wouldn't that be nice? It seems like that would be, I don't know what I would respond. What, what do you want? What do you want, Susan? What do you want to do? Like that kind of question. But Bartimaeus knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly what he wants. He says, teacher, I want to see. And Jesus says, your faith, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately, he can see. And instead of going like, ha ha, and going off doing something else, he starts following Jesus on the way. The way is what the early church was called. The early followers of Jesus followed the way. Bartimaeus is not a holy man. He wasn't wasn't special. Things weren't going well for him. I'm sure this was not the life he expected when he was a kid. He did not expect to have this life on the street begging. It says that he was the son of Timaeus. Timaeus is a very famous Greek name. Plato has a dialogue called Timaeus. It's about all of creation. It was one of the only dialogues that actually survived through the Middle Ages. Long Plato tangent. I've got to stop myself. Okay. Timaeus was a Greek name. Which means Bartimaeus is a Greek name. He was a pagan. He wasn't a Jew. So here's this pagan in Jericho. Jericho, one of the oldest towns in the history of the world. Jericho, right by Jerusalem. This pagan comes to Jesus. Calls him by his Jewish name. Ben David. Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Bartimaeus is named. He is not arbitrarily mentioned. Not all the people who are healed are named. His father is named, which is also a rarity. As well, Jesus doesn't heal him arbitrarily. It's not just this whim. It's like, okay, you, I'll heal you, and you, I won't. That's not how it worked. All of the healings are signs of who God is and what God is doing. They're recorded to show the power of God, to reveal something about who God is. 
We don't see Bartimaeus again. He doesn't come back to the story in the third act. He's, he goes off. He follows Jesus in his own way. But we see in the transformation of Bartimaeus from blind beggar to follower of the way of Jesus, a sign for what sainthood is. Not, not assuming that holiness is this person who has always known what they wanted to do from the time they were born, but this person who has changed directions because of who God is and realize their life can be more. As Paul says, but we have this treasure in clay jars so that it can be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. The thing about clay jars is they crack. They crack. They don't, they're not iron jars. They're not stainless steel or titanium jars. They're, they're, they're clay and they're crack. And what happens when a jar that's full cracks is it seeps out. And there can be little hairline cracks or even big, big ones, but it, it doesn't hold what it wanted to before. It is fragile. There is fragility in holiness. And the fragility of holiness is what Paul says as it points to God that it is not of our own doing that we have this treasure in clay jars. That we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Who are the people in your life who have sought the mercy of God? Who are the people who have turned their life around? Holiness is not the same as niceness. Holiness is pointing to the God who is love. We are offered... Saints to show us Jesus. They are living gospels. They are living gospels. That's why people walked into the desert to see the desert mothers and the desert fathers because they had read the stories, they had heard the stories, but they wanted to see what it meant. They wanted to see what a life could be like. Saints are icons that do not point to themselves but point to God. Our saints are not without their flaws. We do not cease to be holy because we are human. We cease to be holy when we cease to be human. We cease to be holy when we stop caring for other people. We cease to be holy when we demand robotic obedience from our bodies or from others and berate them for not being robotic creatures. We cease to be holy when we cease to recognize the humanity of the people around us. What is powerful today is that each of you has shared a story of inspiration of God working. That God works in amazing ways. And amazingly, there are people in each of your lives that look up to you. I know that's shocking. It's shocking for me. You're all looking at me. I think that's amazing. (laughs) Only God could bring me to this place today. We each have an opportunity to draw others towards love. We each have an opportunity to draw others towards kindness and charity. To be an example, not because we are so great, but because God is so great. God uses us. We are these clay vessels. And as Paul continues in 2 Corinthians, he says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. We know that the one who raised Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and will bring us with you into 
his presence. When we are forgiven by Jesus, when we are forgiven by God, we are not displaced, but made more ourselves. My favorite example of this is the story of Archimedes. I'm only doing like 17th century or ancient history examples today. But, uh, Archimedes, who uh, was the mathematician, the ancient mathematician, and he uh, was in the bathtub, and he suddenly was taking a bath, and he realized that he could measure volume because water, the body displaces water. And he had a, like, this has never happened before. You couldn't measure volume before. And he's so excited. He jumps out of the bath and runs through the street yelling, Eureka, Eureka, even though he's completely naked. <laughs> but I think this idea of displacement is so helpful for us because so often we think of God in this kind of displacement mindset that God, either, you know, maybe to be a Christian is to empty ourselves of ourselves. That we don't want to, we don't want to love too much because then we wouldn't be ourselves. We don't want to give too much because then we wouldn't be ourselves. But what God actually does is displace the sin in our life. God displaces the selfishness, the things that we, the self-destructive habits in our life. And with grace in our life, we are actually more ourselves. And when we, when we lean into love, when we lean into to grace, into mercy, into forgiveness, we become more ourselves. And when we look at a saint, it is not that they are so different from us, but they are more themselves than we are ourselves. And that God doesn't wish us to be like that. God doesn't call you to be more like Mother Teresa, but to remember that Mother Teresa isn't special in herself, but she points to the God who is love. And that the person you spoke of, the person in your life who is a saint, who is holy, is not special, does not have special wisdom or special insight, but has become more themselves. Because they have leaned into grace. They have leaned into mercy. Have you ever thought about yourself as a saint? It is much easier not to, to do that. Um, I have major imposter syndrome. And so I never feel like I belong to a room I enter. Um, that doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if it's a grocery store. It doesn't matter a church. I, you know, I'm a pastor. And I still like, do I really belong here? Um, <laughs> this kind of sense. But God pushes against that. In me, God reminds me through prayer. God reminds me through the people in my lives that, yes, Wilson, you belong. And I'm here to remind all of you that even though you may feel out of place here or you may feel out of place in your lives and in your body, you belong. You belong here. You matter to God. You matter to God as well. You have a life that can point towards love. We are not our mistakes. We are not the worst things we have done in our life. We are not the worst things in our hearts. Our hearts and our desires are not these ironclad things. They are these clay vessels. And when, and when they crack, it's not because they are being destroyed. It's because they are showing more of God to the world. But we expect grace in these clay vessels. God's grace is offered to you. Grace not only to be forgiven, but to be loved Grace not only to be loved, but to share that love, not to hoard it, not to put it under the basket. You shared stories of the saints in your life with your neighbor this morning. And I encourage you this week to share a story of a saint, of a holy person in your life. Share it with someone else. Share it with someone outside of church. You don't have to use like churchy's language. This is not like a ploy of evangelism. It's a, it's a way of sharing grace with another of the possibility of that. Don't be afraid to share the story of someone holy in your life. Someone amazing that points to love, that points to God. Tell the stories of the saints in your life. Don't just leave it in the back of your memory. 
for times like these. Speak of it often because in sharing, we are reminded of who those people are who shaped us and are shaping us still. And using us to show forth the possibility of love in this broken world. You know, God doesn't want us to close our eyes and close our ears to the brokenness in this world. That is what God's purpose is not. God's purpose is not for that. We're not supposed to go la, 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 la when we hear of tragedies. To say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen. And hopefully to look for wherever there's a tragedy, there are people responding and helping and seeking out to care for others. And to lift up those stories, to think about the stories of our people in our own life, of the people who have lifted up others, who have shown love. God is using you. God is using you this day. You may not realize it, but be open to the possibility that God is using you to show forth love in this broken world. God is using us to show that even this fragile clay vessel can bring forth the love of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.